Section one of The Death of Lord Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by F. N. H. The Death of Lord Nelson by William Beatty. Section one. Authentic narrative of the death of Lord Nelson with the circumstances preceding, attending, and subsequent to that event. The professional report of his lordship's wound, and several interesting anecdotes, by William Beatty, M.D., surgeon to the victory in the Battle of Trafalgar, and now physician to the fleet under the command of the Earl of St. Vincent, K.B. To the public. The surgeon of the late illustrious Lord Nelson feels himself called upon from the responsible situation which he hailed on the eventful day of 21st of October 1805, to lay before the British nation the following narrative. It contains an account of the most interesting incidents which occurred on board the Victory, Lord Nelson's flagship, from the time of her sailing from England in the month of September, till the day of the battle inclusively, with a detail of the particulars of his lordship's death, the mode adopted for preserving his revered remains during the subsequent long passage of the victory to England, and the condition of the body when it was deposited in Greenwich Hospital. This short statement of facts is deemed a small but necessary tribute of respect to the memory of the departed hero, as well as a professional document which the public had a right to expect from the man who had the melancholy honour of being his principal medical attendant on that occasion and is presumed to be not unappropriately concluded by observations on his state of his lordship's health for some time previous to his fall, with his habits of life and other circumstances, strongly proving that few men had a greater prospect of attaining longevity, on which account his premature death is the more to be deplored by his country. It was originally intended that this narrative should be published in the Life of Lord Nelson, undertaken by the Reverend J. S. Clark and J. MacArthur, Esquire, and it will still form a part of that work, but from the length of time from which necessarily elapsed before so extensive and magnificent a publication can be completed, the author has induced to print in a separate form. Narrative Lord Nelson sailed from St. Helens in the victory with the Eurylius frigate on the morning of the 15th of September, 1805, to take the command of the British fleet cruising before Cadiz. On the 18th, he appeared off Plymouth, where he was joined by His Majesty's ship, Thunderer and Ajax, with which he proceeded for his destined station. On the 20th, he communicated by private signal with the squadron under the command of Rear Admiral Stirling, which passed within a few miles of the victory and the same day, at noon, spoke His Majesty's ship Le Decade, having on board Rear Admiral Sir Richard Bickerton, who was on his return to England for the recovery of his health. Some bad weather and adverse winds were experienced by the victory in crossing the Bay of Biscay, and on the 27th Cape St. Vincent was seen. Lord Nelson had dispatched Euryalus ahead on the preceding day to acquaint Admiral Collingwood with his approach and to direct that no salute should take place, nor any public compliments be paid to his flag, 
on his assuming the command as he wished the enemy to be kept ignorant of a reinforcement being received by the british fleet in the evening of the twenty eighth the victory joined the fleet now consisting of twenty-seven ships of the line including the victory ajax and thunderer the city of cadiz was seen distant about fifteen miles with the combined fleets at anchor and admiral louis with five or six ships under his command close in shore watching the motions of the enemy on the twenty ninth prompt and decisive measures were adopted to prevent the enemy from receiving any supplies or provisions by sea which his lordship was informed they were very much distressed for cruisers were stationed off the cape st vincent st mary's and trafalgar and the frigates euryalus and hydra were ordered to keep off the entrance of cadiz his lordship now retired with the fleet to the vicinity of cape st mary's about fifty or sixty miles westward of cadiz keeping up a constant communication with the frigates in shore by means of three or four ships of the line placed at convenient intervals for distinguishing the signals of each other the distance from the enemy's port was preserved by his lordship to prevent them from being speedily acquainted with the force of the fleet under his command and that he might avoid the necessity of bearing up in bad weather and running with the fleet through the straits of gibraltar when the westerly gales prevailed as the inconvenience of being forced into the mediterranean had been felt by former commanders-in-chief and would now have afforded a favourable opportunity to the enemy of effecting their escape from cadiz or at all events have rendered their obtaining supplies less difficult on the first of october admiral louis joined the fleet with a part of his squadron the canopus spencer and tigra from before cadiz and departed the next day with those ships the queen and the zealous for gibraltar to procure a supply of provisions stores and water which they were much in want of on the fourth he rejoined with their squadron having received intelligence from the euryalus by telegraph that the french ships in cadiz were embarking their troops and preparing to sail lord nelson however conceived this to be merely intended as a stratagem to draw him nearer to cadiz for the purpose of obtaining a knowledge of his force and therefore directed admiral louis to proceed in the execution of the orders before delivered to him between the seventh and thirteenth his lordship was reinforced by the royal sovereign the belize defiance agamemnon and africa from england and the leviathan from gibraltar the agamemnon sir edward berry joined on the thirteenth with intelligence that she had been chased on the coast of portugal a few days before by an enemy's squadron consisting of six sail of the line on the thirteenth in the evening sir robert calder in his majesty's ship the prince of wales was parted company with the fleet on his return to england his departure lord nelson had some days before evinced an anxious wish to procrastinate and was heard that very day to, to declare his firm belief that the combined fleets would be at sea in the course of ten days or a fortnight on the eighteenth the donegal captain malcolm left the fleet for gibraltar on the nineteenth his majesty's ships the colossus mars defence and agamemnon formed the cordon of communication with the frigates in shore the fleet was lying too about half past nine in the morning the mars being one of the ships nearest to the fleet repeated the signal from the ships further in shore that the enemy were coming out of port 
Lord Nelson immediately ordered the general signal to be made with two guns for a chase in the south-east quarter. The wind was now very light, and the breezes partial, mostly from the south-southwest. The fleet made all possible sail, and about two o'clock the Colossus and Mars repeated signals from the ships in shore, communicating the welcome intelligence of the enemy being at sea. This cheered the minds of all on board, with the prospect of realising those hopes of meeting the enemy which had been so long and so sanguinely entertained. It was well known to his lordship that all the enemy's ships had the iron hoops on their masts painted black, whereas the British ships, with the exception of the Belize and Polyphemus, had theirs painted yellow, and as he described that this would serve for a very good mark of distinction in the heat of battle, he had made known his circumstances to the fleet, and ordered the Belize and Polyphemus to paint their hoops yellow. But the evening, being far advanced when the signal was made to them for this purpose, his lordship, fearing that it might not be distinctly understood, sent the entrepreneur cutter to them to communicate the order. During the night the fleet continued steering to the south-east under all sail, in expectation of seeing the enemy, and at daybreak on the 20th found itself in the entrance of the Straits of Gibraltar, but nothing of the enemy to be discovered. The fleet now wore, and made sail to the north-west, and at seven in the morning the Phoebe was seen making signals for the enemy bearing north. At eight o'clock the victory hove to, and Admiral Collingwood, with the captains of the Mars, Colossus, and Defence, came on board, to receive instructions from his lordship. At eleven minutes past nine they returned to their respective ships, and the fleet made sail again to the northward. In the afternoon the wind increased, and blew fresh from the south-west, which excited much apprehension on board the victory, lest the enemy might be forced to return to port. The lookout ships, however, made several signals for seeing them, and to report their force and bearings. His lordship was at this time on the poop, and turning round, and observing a group of midshipmen assembled together, he said to them with a smile, "'This day, or to-morrow, will be a fortunate one for you, young men,' alluding to their being promoted in the event of a victory. A little before sunset, the Euryalus communicated intelligence by telegraph that the enemy appeared determined to go back to the westward. His lordship, upon this, ordered it to be signified to Captain Blackwood of that ship, by signal that he depended on the Euryalus for keeping sight of the enemy during the night. The night signals were so clearly and distinctly arranged by his lordship, and so well understood by his respective captains, that the enemy's motions continued to be made known to him with the greatest facility throughout the night. A certain number of guns, with false fires and blue lights, announced their altering of course, wearing and making or shortening of sail, and signals communicating such changes were repeated by the lookout ships from the Euryalus to the Victory. The enemy wore twice during the night, which evolution was considered by his lordship as showing an intention on their part of keeping the port of Cadiz open, and made him apprehend that on seeing the British fleet they would effect their retreat thither before he could bring them to a general action. He was therefore very careful not to approach their fleet near enough to be seen by them before morning. The British fleet wore about two o'clock in the morning, and stood on the larboard tack with their heads to the northward, carrying their topsails and foresails, 
and anxiously expecting the dawn of the day. When that period arrived, the combined fleets were distinctly seen from the victory's deck, formed in a close line of battle ahead on the starboard tack, standing to the south and about twelve miles to leeward. They consisted of thirty-three ships of the line, four of which were three-deckers, and one of seventy guns. The strength of the British fleet was twenty-seven ships of the line, seven of which were three-deckers, and three of sixty-four guns. Lord Nelson had, on the tenth, issued written instructions to the admirals and captains of the fleet individually, pointing out his intended mode of attack in the event of meeting the enemy, and now, previously to appearing himself on deck, he directed Captain Hardy to make the necessary signals for the order and disposition of the fleet accordingly. His lordship came upon deck soon after daylight. He was dressed as usual in his admiral's frock-coat, bearing on the left breast four stars of different orders which he always wore with his common apparel. He displayed excellent spirits, and expressed his pleasure at the prospect of giving a fatal blow to the naval power of France and Spain, and spoke with confidence of obtaining a signal victory, notwithstanding the inferiority of the British fleet, declaring to Captain Hardy that he would not be contented with capturing less than twenty sail of the line. He afterwards pleasantly observed that on the 21st of October was the happiest day in the year among his family. He did not assign the reason of this. His lordship had previously entertained a strong presentiment that this would prove the auspicious day, and had several times said to Captain Hardy and Dr. Scott, chaplain of the ship and foreign secretary to the commander-in-chief, whose intimate friendship he enjoyed, the 21st of October will be our day. The wind was now from the west, but the breezes were very light, with a long heavy swell running. The signal being made for bearing down upon the enemy in two lines, the British fleet set all possible sail. The lee line, consisting of thirteen ships, was led by Admiral Collingwood in the Royal Sovereign, and the weather line, composed of fourteen ships, by the Commander-in-Chief of the Victory. His Lordship had ascended the poop, to have a better view of both lines of the British fleet, and while there, gave particular directions for taking down from his cabin the different fixtures, and for being very careful in removing the portrait of Lady Hamilton. "'Take care of my guardian angel,' said he, addressing himself to the persons to be employed in this business. Immediately after this, he quitted the poop, and retired to his cabin for a few minutes, where he committed to paper the following short, but devout and fervent ejaculation, which must be universally admired as truly characteristic of the Christian hero, and the codicil to his will, which follows it. May the great God whom I worship grant to my country, and for the benefit of Europe in general, a great and glorious victory. And may no misconduct in any one tarnish it. And may humanity after victory be the predominant feature in the British fleet. For myself individually, I commit my life to him that made me, and may his blessing alight on my endeavours for serving my country faithfully. To him I resign myself, and the just cause which is entrusted to me to defend. Amen, amen, amen. October 21st, 1805 Whereas the eminent services of Emma Hamilton, widow of the Right Honourable Sir William Hamilton, 
have been of the very greatest service to my king and country, to my knowledge, without ever receiving any reward from either king or country. First, that she obtained the king of Spain's letter in 1796 to his brother, the king of Naples, acquainting him of his intention to declare war against England, from which letter the ministry sent out orders to the then Sir John Jervis to strike a stroke if opportunity offered against either of the arsenals of Spain or her fleets. That neither of these was done is not the fault of Lady Hamilton. The opportunity might have been offered. Secondly, the British fleet, under my command, could never have returned the second time to Egypt, had not Lady Hamilton's influence with the Queen of Naples caused letters to be wrote to the Governor of Syracuse, that he was to encourage the fleets, being supplied with everything should they put into any port in Sicily. We put into Syracuse, and received every supply, went to Egypt, and destroyed the French fleet. Could I have rewarded the services, I would not now call upon my country. But as that has not been in my power, I leave Emma, Lady Hamilton, therefore, a legacy to my king and country, that they will give her an ample provision to maintain her rank in life. I also leave to the beneficence of my country my adopted daughter, Horatia Nelson Tomlinson, and I desire she will use in future the name of Nelson only. These are the only favours I ask of my king and country at this moment when I am going to fight their battle. May God bless my king and country, and all those I hold dear. My relations it is needless to mention, they will of course be amply provided for. Witness, Henry Blackwood, T. M. Hardy. The prayer and codicil were both written with his lordship's own hand within three hours before the commencement of the engagement. As the victory drew near to the enemy, his lordship, accompanied by Captain Hardy, and the captains of the four frigates, Euryalus, Nyad, Sirius, and Phoebe, who had been called on board by signal to receive instructions, visited the different decks of the ship. He addressed the crew at their several quarters, admonishing them against firing a single shot without being sure of their object, and expressed himself to the officers highly satisfied with the arrangements made at their respective stations. It was now plainly perceived by all on board the victory, that from the very compact line which the enemy had formed, they were determined to make one great effort to recover in some measure their long-lost naval reputation. They wore in succession about twenty minutes past seven o'clock, and stood on the larboard tack, with the heads towards Cadiz. They kept a good deal of sail set, steering about two points from the wind, with top sail shivering. Their van was particularly closed, having the Santissima Trinidada and the Bucantor, the ninth and ten ships, the latter the flagship of the Admiral Villeneuve, but as the admirals of the combined fleets declined showing their flags till the heat of the battle was over, the former of these ships was only distinguished from the rest by her having four decks, and Lord Nelson ordered the victory to be steered for her bow. End of section one. Recording by F. N. H. Visit www.bookranger.co.uk